Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you. Lord, holy is your name. And we pray, Lord, for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. We thank you for the cross of our Lord Jesus. And we thank you for the understanding that you give us in your word of all that you have done to reconcile us to yourself. God, help us as we learn to think deeply about these matters. Help us, Lord, to meditate and, and to appreciate all of the glory and the wonder of what you have done for us. May it come alive to us today as we look into your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have to be called children of God through the blood of your son, Jesus. And that, Lord, not only is our relationship restored, but we are the very sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the rich blessing of your grace that you pour out upon us. I pray, Lord, that as we study these things, we will come to appreciate them more and more. And Lord, that they would strengthen our faith and they would encourage us to the hope of eternal life. And Lord, that they would bind us together in in one purpose with your agenda in mind. And may we be devoted as we seek to love you and serve you and walk in all your ways and keep your commandments. God, we pray that you would continue to work out our practical sanctification in our life. Lord, that we would be holy even as you are holy. God, that we would be like Jesus. Lord, how we want to be like Jesus. And so help us through these things, God, to become like him. We thank you for all that you are to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Uh, With that, I'm just going to briefly review uh, where we're at so that we can move on. We started talking about the atonement several weeks back. and, And then we said that the cross was the very focal point of human history. And that because of God's plan of redemption that he ultimately had in mind the goal of Jesus dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and redeem us from our sins. And that through that he would display all of the majesty and the wonder of his character and his attributes. And, and uh, so that the cross isn't just something that happened, but it was in fact the fulfillment of God's eternal plan of, of, uh, of salvation for which he made the whole creation. The creation was made to serve this purpose of God in redemption, that he might reveal his glory in this way. <laughs> And, and, of course, in this way, in the cross, in the atonement, this is the chief display of the glory of God in the creation. And so uh, the cross and the, and the atonement is the fulfillment of the plan of redemption, and it is the focal point of human history. So then we began talking about the atonement itself and what is the atonement, and we had a little section there on defining the atonement. And uh, that begins on your handout uh, uh, back on page 39. And there we talked about 
the different ways that Scripture speaks about the atonement. It uses a lot of different kinds of words to describe it, and it's not just some one simple little idea, but that there is a, a, a plethora of ideas and concepts that the Bible uses to describe what happened in the atonement. But we, we said there that we're using the word atonement in our study here in the sense of it is the whole scope of Christ's saving work. So when we talk about the atonement, we're saying, we're using it as a noun, but it's descriptive of all of the verbs, if you will, that were accomplished at the cross. And all of the things that Christ did in his saving work. And um, so uh, when we define the atonement, we, we looked at all these uh, different ideas and concepts that the scripture has to, to present to us to define what it's like. Well, uh, today we're going to go into depth in that. Um, but as we were moving along, we, we talked about then the necessity of the atonement. And we talked about uh, how necessary it was uh, to come to pass. Number one, because of sin. The atonement was necessary because of sin, because God is estranged from mankind because of sin, and mankind is estranged from God because of sin. And so the, the atonement is necessary in order to reconcile us to God, in order to deal with the alienation that we have from God and that God has from us. And, and so, if you will, uh, the atonement uh, is necessary because of this alienation that we have. And I'm, uh, it's a familiar picture to me. I don't know who painted it, but there's a painting of Adam and Eve, famous painting, uh, being banished from the Garden of Eden. And if you will, there's a picture of God there, and Adam and Eve uh, in their shame, and he's pointing outside the garden, and if you will, decreeing to them at that point there that you're going to be shut out from my presence here. And there is in the background the angel with the flaming sword and the idea of mankind being banished from the presence of God. If you will, what that picture portrays is the alienation that God has from man and that man has from God because of sin. And it is that idea or that concept that makes the atonement necessary. Something must happen in order for mankind to be saved from the wrath of God, which is death, and to be brought back into relationship with God, to have his relationship restored with God, so that now he can dwell again in the presence of God. And uh, so that makes the atonement very necessary. But then also, when we speak about the, the necessity of the atonement, we talk about the very means by which it was accomplished and how necessary they are in and of themselves. So in other words... Yes, it's necessary because of sin, but it's necessary that it happen in this specific way and by these specific means. And so that's when we got into the arguments about, uh, well, is it just a hypothetical thing that God could have chosen to do it many different ways? Or, did it, or was it absolutely necessary that God used the means that he used in order to bring it to pass? And of course, that was the topic of our lesson last week. And there we uh, discussed the fact that Yes, it was absolutely necessary for God to do it in the specific way that he did it. 
it isn't just some uh, some of many ways God could have done it because there are several aspects to the atonement that could not have been accomplished in any other way. And so a few of those were the incarnation. Scripture says in Hebrews that Jesus had to be made like his brothers. And, and if you will, there is a necessity for him to take on a human nature, to become like us, to, to, to therefore die for us or vicariously, and then also in our place. He had to take on our nature in order for his sinless life to be provided as a sacrifice to cover our sins. And so that the, the means of the atonement of the cross are absolutely necessary because the incarnation, because Christ had to become one of us and become like us in every way in order to bring about propitiation. And then furthermore, we talked about the fact that it was absolutely necessary this way because we needed a man who could represent us who was holy and undefiled and unblemished and who had a perfect righteousness in and of himself so that he would not pay the penalty of his own sins, but that he could stand as a substitute and die in our place. Okay? And so, again, the atonement becomes absolutely necessary in, uh, the, in, by these means for that purpose. And furthermore, we said that it was impossible. This is how the scripture describes this. It is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins, okay? But that those things were merely a shadow pointing to the ultimate reality of Christ because Christ had to enter heaven himself to the very tabernacle of God and present his own blood there for the atonement in God's true presence where he lives in heaven. And and the scripture describes this, and of course we went over this last week, but... Uh, in Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the scripture is making these points very clearly. Um, in, in Hebrews 9, uh, verse 23, it says, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. So, in other words, the, the tabernacle on earth was a copy of the true tabernacle that is in heaven. Okay? And, and the tabernacle on earth was cleansed by things such as these, the writer says, which are the blood of goats and bulls. Okay, But the, the true tabernacle which is in heaven, it says, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Okay, And so Jesus went not only as our priest, but as the very sacrifice himself, the very atoning victim himself, into heaven. There his blood could be sprinkled there on the true mercy seat where God is in heaven. And so Hebrews 10 verses 4 through 7 says, It is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says... Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. 
Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And here's the point. Jesus came into the world to take on a body in the incarnation for this very purpose, that God was not pleased and satisfied with the blood of goats and bulls and the sacrifices that were offered in the tabernacle. They were not sufficient to atone for sin. But this is the reason why Jesus came. In the role of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God, to come and offer the body thou hast prepared for me. And so, if you will, these means of the atonement are absolutely necessary for that point. And then, lastly, I I made the point that man could never, in and of himself, somehow provide this atonement for himself. And this makes the atonement of Christ absolutely necessary. There's no other way for us to be reconciled to God. Because the demands of God's holy law, His just and good requirement for the penalty of violating the law of God is death. Therefore, the only way we can atone for sin is to pay infinite death. Which is what death is. And is is what happens to every soul who is not atoned for by the blood of Christ. Okay? And so it's absolutely necessary that we have a holy, undefiled priest who can present himself in our place and die for us and specifically have his righteousness imputed to us as individuals. Because there's no possible way for us in and of ourselves to achieve that reconciliation. The only way it can be done is for us to be shut out from the presence of God forever. Okay, well, so then, uh, that brings us to this last reason, very last reason why the atonement is absolutely necessary. And here's why. Because God, in his infinite wisdom and perfection, has decreed that it should be this way. Are you with me? Here's what we're saying. Because God does everything infinitely perfect, and according to his infinitely wise plan, okay, everything that happens is happening according to his perfect decree. And it is necessary for things to happen in the world the way they happen. Not to mention the least of which is the most important event in human history, the cross. So the cross is absolutely necessary because that's the means by which God decreed that it should come to pass. To perfectly meet the requirements of his holy law, which in in fact then does reconcile us to God. Only God knows what it takes to redeem mankind from sin. Man was so ignorant in his sin, really had no concept what he was doing in alienating God from himself by sinning against God. I mean, think, you you think Adam had any idea in his mind that he was going to plunge the entire creation into bondage to decay and that the subsequent ages of mankind would be be living through sin and suffering and death for, for millennium on end? You think Adam had any concept that that kind of a thing was going to be the result of his sin? Surely he did not. He sinned in ignorance. And and even us, who have all of the revelation of God's holy word and the spirit of God here now to teach us even, yea, even the deep things of God, have such a little concept 
of all that is encompassed in, in what sin has done to destroy us and, and what Christ has done to redeem us. Amen? I mean, we're, we're just even now just barely learning of the glories of what God has done in Christ. And, and we only learn that in proportion to how we learn how severe the sin problem is. Amen? And that's what this study on the atonement is really doing for us. It's helping us to see the fine points of all that happened in the destruction of our relationship with God and then what Christ has done as a provision to correct those things. Amen? And so we're even now, we're just now coming out of our ignorance and learning uh, by the revelation of God uh, what this is all about. So then, um, it's important to understand that because God has decreed that these things should happen the way they happen, makes them infinitely perfect and all-wise. Are you with me? So don't forget about this whole idea of decree. Okay, it's really important, and that's where we're going to start in our discussion today on the nature of the atonement. The nature of the atonement. So... We could ask the question, how does the scripture describe what the atonement is? What it is in its very nature, okay? And so we kind of touched on this when we, when we defined what the atonement was, but the point there was just to say that it, it is really speaking of the whole scope of what Christ has done. So now when we talk about the nature of the atonement, we're going to talk about each of the individual elements and aspects of what that is that Christ has done and how the Bible expresses it and describes it, okay? So, if you will, here, the study today is on the nature of the atonement. The atonement has several very important characteristics which are important to realize. In the hymn, For Man the Savior Bled, the writer makes the statement, Oh, what heavenly wonders dwell! In thy atoning blood. Now, when we consider the nature of the atonement, this truth is displayed wonderfully. That is, that there are wonders in the atoning blood of Christ that are deep and unsearchable and profound beyond our imagination. And we're going to get a taste of that today. There is so much depth of character in what Christ has done, it sends one's heart and mind soaring. Let us consider then some of these matters. As we think about the very ground of the atonement, we must consider that it is grounded in God's sovereignty and eternal decree. Okay? So here's what we're saying. Let's talk about the nature of the atonement. What is it like? What is its very nature? Well, first and foremost, it's grounded in the decree. Okay? And, of course, we've been here a little bit, but I I want you to get this in your mind. That what has happened in the atonement has happened because that's the way God planned for it to happen. And so it is therefore perfect. It's therefore certain. It's therefore glorious. It's therefore consistent with all of the attributes of God. It's wise. Yes, ma'am. Well, because we, 
on the other hand, do plan and think, right? So the only way that we can understand the infinite perfections in the mind of God is for us to consider them in a sequence of time. But God is not bound by time. God is outside of time. He therefore does not have to think. He doesn't contemplate. And of course, this discussion really more gets into the idea of omniscience. And not only that, but God, uh, you know, there's this whole discussion about timelessness and eternity, which is related to the knowledge of God. And so um, I, I, I can point you to resources that would try to explain more fully the, the point that I'm making. But, but the point is, is that because God is outside of time, his knowledge, let's see if I can just do this briefly, his knowledge happens in one simple, eternal act. So, God knows the entire record of human history, all of the possible data that has existed from the beginning of the creation to, 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 to the end of the history of time itself. He knows eternally in one simple act. So, therefore, God, when he thinks about that knowledge has access to every bit of that knowledge from beginning to end, all at the, and here's the, the, the thing that you can't assign to God, all at the same time. He doesn't do it in moments of time. So there's no succession of thought in the mind of God because thought has to do with time. Thinking is something we do that's a cognitive process that happens over time. In the moments of my brain, I may be driving down the road, a dog runs out in front of the car, in the succession of thought in my brain, I'm thinking, well, you have to do something. You must respond. Run over the dog or step on the brake. Are you with me? And that thinking process happens, even though it's very quickly there. It happens as a succession of thought in the moment of time, which is also what's implied, as you said, by the idea of planning. And so we talk about the plan of God. Well, how can we say God plans if we are saying that God doesn't think, right? And I think that's kind of the nature of your question. And here's what I'm saying about that. These terms that the Bible uses to express the mind and the thought and process of God to us are anthropomorphic. Are you with me? I think I'm spelling this right anthropomorphic okay so what does that mean it means it's expressing the divine nature of god to us in a way that is consistent with man anthro so it represents it to us in a way that we can understand it so the only way that god can really express to us the idea of his eternal decree is to is to say in the scripture that he planned from long ages past, the mystery that has now come forth in the gospel. Um, and, and so, if you will, uh, God has to use those terms in order to communicate the divine thought to us. But when we think about the nature of God, we, we, we have to understand that God is, is outside of time and his knowledge is absolutely comprehensive. So that, that what that means by its very nature is, is that everything that happens happens at the decree of God because he's also the God of providence, which means that God is interacting 
uh, with his creation in order to bring to pass the expected end for which he decreed it to come to pass. Are you with me? So, therefore, i uh, just give you an example, and uh, we use this in the past, but on 9-11, the plane flew into the towers and knocked the towers down. Right? Well, we asked the question, was that the will of God? Well, it was the sovereign will of God that it should happen, although it's not consistent with his moral will because God hates murder and he hates uh, destruction and, and these kinds of things. But the point is just that God has decreed from all eternity that that event should come to pass and be a part of the fulfillment of his ultimate plan in displaying his glory in the majesty of his creation and in the outworking of his providence throughout human history. Are you with me? And that's what we're talking about when we talk about decree. We're saying because God's knowledge is comprehensive of all the events of human history and he is in fact working by his providence to guide the events of history to reach his ultimate expected end and he has not intervened to change that in the course of history, that means he from the very beginning decreed that it should come to pass the way it has come to pass. Are you with me? Now, I understand this is a, a deep concept. And, you know, some of you just can't go there. Others of you are absolutely fascinated by it, okay? But this is a big argument in theology these days. Uh, you know, it, 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 there's really a lot of controversy about it. But, but I think it's a very crystal clear thing in the Scripture, and I take an, an absolutely traditional view of the idea of omniscience, which is kind of what I'm trying to explain this morning, that... Omniscience is God's comprehensive knowledge happening in one simple act. Or, and and I, w- I would say thought, but I think that term is misleading. So in other words, when God decides to create, he doesn't sit on his throne in heaven for millions of years trying to figure out how he's going to plan it and make it all happen. He does it a different way. He does it like this. Creation. It's done. And what's included in that, in that one simple, it's actually a sovereign decree from his mouth, (laughs) okay? But the point is, is that what the result of God's knowledge is his decree that it should happen and his power to bring it forth. So that all of that happens in God's mind eternally. So, in other words, God knew that a hundred billion trillion years ago. He knew the whole comprehensive scope of human history. Because in his knowledge, he comprehensively knows it all. So, I'm sorry. I hope that's not confusing. But did I, did I get to, you, to answer your question? You did a wonderful job. I just, I'm wondering if the word ponder uh-huh. He, he is, and, and, and so I, I would say no. I would say that God doesn't ponder, and in my mind, that's the same thing as thinking. Mm-hmm. And those are things that humans do, and they, in, they involve a process that takes place in time. And so, so um, I think uh, Grudem, although he's not given to really good, ex- thorough, comprehensive explanations in his theology because it's just an introduction, But in his uh, theology, he gives a really concise definition of omniscience, which I I think is very biblically consistent, and which might shed more light on this. If you have a Grudem's, you can go there. If you don't, email me, and I'll send you the little section on that. But, um, you know, it's just, um, 
whenever we, we, we think about the way that God is expressed to us in the scripture, it, it is always anthropomorphic because we're, we're men, we're, we're people, and that's the only way we can understand it. We can only understand it in terms of what we know and, and what our world is like. So uh, that's why I think the scripture has to use words like God's plan, which is definitely a biblical word. Um, and and it, when, it, when it shows God relating to mankind, it shows God as thinking. Because in his providence and in his decree, he's also ordained that our free actions interwork with his providence to bring the outcome that he has decreed from eternity past. Are you with me? So, so there's this whole idea where, you know, the scripture will talk about God relenting. You know, he was sorry that he made man on the earth. Uh, you know, and, it, and, and these kinds of terms only help us to understand what our relating process is like to God. It doesn't really mean that God changed his mind. Okay, but the scripture has to use a term like that in order for us to understand what must be happening in the divine mind. Are you with me? Because we're subject to doing things like that, like changing our mind. Okay, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change his mind. Scripture says explicitly, he doesn't change his mind. He's not like a man, right? Yet, we see the Bible explaining in terms in the outworking of providence God doing things like thinking and God responding to people the way they act and so on and so forth. However, the outcome of those events is consistent with what he has decreed should come to pass from eternity past. Okay? I'm willing to go there. Yes? So if he doesn't change his mind, I need an argument here to say to other people who I have heard that God does change his mind. Mm -hmm. In the Old Testament, he was going to destroy the Israelites. Moses went and prayed, Dear God, please don't do this. Reminded them. He changed his mind. In the Bible, it's, So God did not destroy. What is that? So I can what you have is a creature, Moses, yeah. in time and space, living in a succession of events in time. Okay? And you have God, who is outside of time, interacting with mankind in space and time. Are you with me? So what's happening is, in the succession of events in time, guess what? Israel has hacked off God. <laughs> so in, in order for Moses to understand the severity of this, God says, I'm going to destroy these people. They can't act like that. I'm holy God, right? And so you have this whole interaction between God and Moses. Well, what happens ultimately is God does not destroy Israel in that set of circumstances there, in their wanderings and so on. That happened several times, by the way. And, and, uh, but what, in fact, did happen is Moses then, after hearing what God said, uh, mediated and, and went and prayed before God and interceded on their behalf and brought to pass an intercession that when it was completed, brought about the mercy of God on the Israelites and, and the subsequent events that took place after that. So what actually God decreed from all eternity to come to pass was the fact that he would ultimately show mercy in that situation, even though he has ordained by his providence that he'll interact with mankind in time and space as the succession of events in time take place and happen. Does that make it more clear? How do you have a, a timeless being 
interact with beings in time. Okay, and that's the conundrum that happens when people are at, saying these things. And I want to I want to equip you to be able to answer these questions for people. This has to do exactly with the understanding of the omniscience of God. This is a this is an attribute that we Christians have got to understand, especially in this uh, somewhat educated culture that we live in. Because people have these questions, and they're real questions, and they're good questions. They're questions every one of us ought to ask at some point and find the answer for in Scripture. And, and the answer is an understanding of the doctrine of omniscience. Okay, And so I would suggest that we get a really good grasp on what that means. So when you're asking me these questions, how do I answer them? Well, I answer them from my knowledge of what God's character and nature is, which frankly... If you understand God's character and nature, you have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You understand how things relate in God's world and in his universe because you understand the being of God to some degree. And, the, and to the greater degree that you understand the character and nature of God, you have a clearer and clearer understanding of all that he has done in, in his creation. And, and so on this topic, the answer for people is... Just take them right to the nature of God and say, here's the deal. And, of course, people haven't thought about this before. All they want to do is shoot down your understanding or whatever, you know, and they haven't thought about the being of God. They're not like you if, they're, if you're having an argument about these things. Typically, they're not meditating on the very nature of God. So we have to take them there, and we have to say, you see, God is outside of time. He's not like us. And we have to explain to them about the omniscience of God. And, and once they can grasp those concepts, then they can understand what the Bible means by this. And quite frankly, some Christians never get past this. Not, not to mention unbelievers, but Christians themselves never get past these conundrums that are created in Scripture because of anthropomorphisms. You understand what I'm saying? They look and they say, no, God changed his mind. That's what the Bible says. Therefore, God changes his mind. And they, they take this literal grasp of what those words are saying without understanding that in, in the background of the panoply of all of Scripture and of what the very nature of God is like. Are you with me? There are answers to all these questions, family. They're sound answers. They're reasonable answers. They're logical answers that are consistent with, with what God has revealed himself to be. Um, but it's important to understand this concept of anthropomorphisms. Are you with me? Did I confuse everybody? Okay. Yes, ma'am. Um, it seems like God has given us an example of how that works and how the earth goes around the sun. From our point of view, the sun goes up and the sun goes down. But actually, the sun is relatively stationary. And, and we're orbiting around, around it. Right. And so we see the sun going everywhere. Mm -hmm. So in our travel through time... Moses saw God change his mind. Actually, God did not change his mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, so how merciful God is to use anthropomorphisms to explain what he's like to us. I mean, I mean, he makes it just as plain and, and earthly as it can possibly be so that we can understand it. Amen? Uh, so, so much so that we have the ultimate anthropomorphism. Jesus, the Christ who is God to become a man. Are you with me? He, he's, in, he's an expression of the word itself, which is anthropomorphic by nature. 
The word is anthropomorphic by nature because it's God's communication to mankind. So that that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, the person, the living word. And he himself is anthropomorphic, right? What does that mean? Well, he's, 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 the, he's the explanation of the divine nature to us. The Hebrew says he's the exact representation of the nature of God. Are you with me? And so that just kind of deals with the whole nature of what scripture and divine revelation are. They're anthropomorphic. And so it has to come down to earth and be spoken in terms that we can grasp it. Are you with me? Okay. <laughs> and that's good. I'm, I'm glad that that stuff comes up because when we start talking about decree, it sends our mind soaring out into heaven where God is. And it's hard to, to get all that stuff in the right place. Okay? Okay. So then, when we talk about the atonement, and we're talking about the very nature of the atonement, what we're saying is, is that it's grounded in the eternal and sovereign decree of God. In other words, God has spoken from eternity past that these things should come to pass and will come to pass, and by his providence is bringing them to pass. Right? Just like it says in, in Peter that he was foreknown from before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake. You see, these are the kind of words that the scripture uses to describe that. It speaks about God's knowledge. You understand? He was foreknown. In other words, God knew it before. And of course, this term foreknowledge in the Bible, has a very profound meaning. It takes on a whole uh, character of love and intimacy that God has foreknown Christ and his redeeming work on the cross from what he says is before the foundation of the world. Okay, so God, Christ's saving work is by very nature the decree of God. Okay? And you say, why all this theological stuff? <coughs> Here's the answer, okay? This is, of course, true about everything that happens. That is, that everything that happens has been decreed by God. But nonetheless, it's also true of the atonement. Therefore, it was always the intended purpose of God for Jesus the Christ to come and give his life as a ransom for sinners, to satisfy and appease his divine wrath by his sacrifice, to stand in the place of those sinners whom he has chosen to save, and by these to reconcile them to himself. This is very clear in Scripture. This is why God sent Jesus to fulfill the plan of redemption. He had purpose from all eternity. And so here's this idea. You know, we, we read this scripture. I'll read it to you. 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, normally when we read that, we read right by the word sent. Because we're focused on this is the love of God or this is the propitiation. Jesus himself is the propitiation. And we miss this term sent. Now think about what that term implies in regard to Jesus being the propitiation and the display of the love of God. The idea is that God sent him. Well, sent him from where? From heaven. From where? From eternity. From outside of time. From before the foundation of the earth. God sent His Son. You understand? It's a decree. 
It's a purpose from before in order to accomplish what he seeks to accomplish in the atonement. Okay? That's extremely important for us to understand. Because it it speaks about the fact that, listen, if God sent the Son to do something, what do you suppose the Son is going to do? He is going to accomplish that which the Father sent him to do. That makes your salvation certain. Are you with me? Your faith is founded upon reasonable, historical fact. That's glorious, family. That's reassuring. Listen, if you you think your sins are so bad they can't be forgiven, you deny the fact that God sent the Son to, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. It is sufficient. The death of Christ is sufficient. Why? Because that's why the Father sent the Son. You think that His knowledge uh, was not comprehensive enough to know how heinous your sin was, that Christ couldn't die in your place because you're too evil? Absolutely not. So why do you carry the burden of guilt when Jesus has come to release you from it? Are you with me? And so we believe the words he spoke. He whom the Son sets free is what? Free Free indeed. It's almost too good to be true. But you know what? It's so good that it is true. Amen? Glorious. Glorious. So then, um, it also says there in John 5, Verse 36, but the witness which I have is greater than that of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Okay, and here's the idea. God sent Jesus from heaven to come down here and do his will. Okay, which implies then that this atonement of him doing God's will and offering his body as a sacrifice was grounded in God's purpose from beforehand, which we express in the word decree. The word decree is God's set purpose and ordination beforehand. Are you with me? Okay. So then God is seen in scripture as the cause of the atonement. God is seen as the cause of the atonement, the great architect behind it all. Isaiah 53, 6, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So who is it that caused our iniquity to fall on Christ? God. God has caused that. That's what the scripture says. This is what we, last year when we were studying omniscience and decree, we talked about the fact that God is the primary cause behind everything that happens. He's primary. Are you with me? So the, the fact is, is that because God has decreed it, he's the primary cause of it. Okay? So, and of course that went into the discussion of the problem of evil and is God guilty of, of evil? And of course the answer is no. But the point is simply this, that when we think about the atonement, We have to think about it as the work of God. It came from God. God did it. God accomplished it. God planned it. God is the one who is is the director of it. Okay? And this is seen in many places in Scripture. So what does all this mean? 
Why all this theological stuff about the decree? Why all this, this idea about God doing this beforehand? And this is the reason, family. Because this means that atonement for sin is absolutely certain. It's certain. So the reason I'm emphasizing this is that that should be the ultimate encouragement for your faith in Christ. You're believing in a finished, complete, final, comprehensive work that Christ has done. And you're free from your sins. Are you with me? (laughs) That should be the ultimate encouragement for you then to love God and to walk in all of His ways and serve Him and obey His commandments so that you can glorify Him with a heart of thanksgiving for what He's done for you. And not just what He's done, but what He's certainly done. Are you with me? These things are rock solid. What God has done in Christ is immovable. It is an everlasting, profound, strong work that God has accomplished. He's destroyed the work of the devil. He's released us from our sins. I mean, the Bible goes to ultimate lengths to, to, to emphasize and describe how complete and comprehensive this work is, which is what we're doing here in the nature of the atonement. But the, 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 the important fact here is that because that's what God has decreed to do from eternity past, then that is exactly what he has brought to pass in time and space. That makes your salvation perfect. That makes the priestly work of Christ perfect. That makes the, the price that Christ paid for sin paid in full. Are you with me? It's absolutely certain. The awesome and wonderful thing about this is that since God has intended to save from the beginning, then that is exactly what he will do and has done. This is expressed in the very name of Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Did you know that? Did you know the word Jesus is, is, is just a, an English rendering of the Hebrew word Joshua, which means the Lord saves. The very name of Jesus represents what God sent him to do. Amen? And of course, he got named before he even came out of the womb. Right? The angel shows up and says to Mary, you're going to have this holy offspring, and his name shall be Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Amen? He will save his people from their sins. Amen? Glorious. This is greatly reassuring. We can rest in the fact that God has intended to save us, so we will be saved. This is the very purpose that Jesus has come, to consummate the ages by his great work of redemption, as it says in Hebrews 9. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Look what that verse of scripture says, family. That the ages are being consummated. How? By Christ being manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The consummation of the ages of history happened at the cross. And it was, in fact, consummated brought to fulfillment 
Are you with me? You see how the scripture speaks about this? It's a glorious thing. It's heavenly wonders that dwell in his atoning blood. But what was it that moved God to design such a thing as this? Well, the answer to this question sheds more light on the character of the atonement. The death of Christ upon the cross is motivated by free and sovereign love. So my first point is that it's grounded in God's sovereign and eternal decree, okay? But it's moved in the heart of God by his own free and sovereign love, okay? Now, it's not just motivated by love, but it's motivated by his free love, by his sovereign love. These are words that describe the character of God's love. Okay? Bear with me here. The death of Christ upon the cross is motivated by free and sovereign love. This is to say that what moved or motivated God to design a world with fallen people and give the life of his son and sacrifice for their sins was the desire to display his love in an amazing and death-defying way. What words could be used to describe the profound depth of the love of God? Only Jesus, the living word, could do that through all that he has done. And here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, in and of itself, is the display and the manifestation of what the love of God looks like for fallen sinners so that words cannot possibly describe adequately what the character of that love is like that instead we have to look at the life of Jesus to see it expressed in all of its manifold beauty are you with me he is the communication of God to us he is the living word He is the manifestation or the consummation of the ages put together there in his life and death and burial and resurrection. He is the display of the free and sovereign love of God. This is what the scripture says in the same verse, 1 John 4.10. In this is love. What's he saying? He's saying this is what love consists in. What is it? Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. This is what love consists in. Love gives itself sacrificially even unto death to benefit its objects. That is the manifestation of the love of God. Okay? Okay, so then, the the scripture expresses this in John 3.16, crystal clear, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It was the love of God that motivated him to what? To give his son. It was the love of God that motivated him. It says this in Ephesians. It says there, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You see, it is the love of Christ that moved him to give himself up for us. It was motivated by his love. Now, here's the part where we talk about free and sovereign, okay? God was not obligated to save us. But in fact, purposed to save us freely. 
Now this is a biblical word. That God purposed to save us freely. Now what does that mean? It means that it was at his disposal and his choice that he decided to save us freely. It was a free choice of God. Why? Because God is by nature free in all the choices he makes. He's not bound by obligation at all. Who has, uh, 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 who has God owed a debt that God should repay him? Amen? Yes, sir. How can that statement be true if God doesn't think it all comes from the primary cause? Then from eternity past, all this was true. Mm -hmm. So So, he didn't decide unless it was in the primary cause, not later. So what's the point? Well, the point is... It's not free? No. I didn't say that. Oh, okay. I'm just saying, I'm struggling with like expected end. He decided when, if everything happened at the primary cause, an original or a original single thought, whatever you want, that created the universe, mankind. Yeah, let's say decree, not thought. Right. Right. So that primary cause decree, Uh then... There wasn't secondary thought attached to it, is what I'm trying to say. And, and sometimes I, how do we express that with human words, like you've talked about, showing there is no secondary cause? All this was from beginning. Yo, I haven't said there isn't a secondary cause. Uh, I didn't even mention the word secondary. No, no. I, I just said his decree was primary. Right. So I'm sorry, I'm just not on that. Help no, me get to that point. Uh huh. It's an absolute end. It's not expected. Yeah, it is. Absolute and expected. Right. It will happen. Right. Just like he decreed it. Right. But it's what I'm saying here is, is that the motivation for it was God's freedom. Correct. Okay. God is free. Did, did God have to create? No. 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 Did God choose to create? Yes. Why? Because, because he's free to choose to create something you and I are not free to do. Right? I mean, I can hammer together a, a birdhouse with wood nails. Right? <laughs> but <laughs> I didn't hear that. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> but listen, I, I can't create the endless universes and galaxies in the sky. God did that freely. Why? By His omnipotence. By, by his sovereign good pleasure, he said, creation, and creation came to pass, right? So, um, <clears throat> I'm not really sure I'm, I'm with you there, but if you want to, if you... I'm just struggling for words that take away the options that we're trying to think through, the, you know... When we say expected in, to me it's more of an absolute in. It's expected by us. It's absolute for God. Is Would that not be true? Uh, I say happen? both are true. Well, right. It's absolutely true. It will happen, and we do expect it to happen. Right. Why? Because it. God promised it from long ages right. past. And, so and whatever God promises, and, and of course that has reference again to his decree, right? right? But since that, he's out of time and space, mm-hmm. it's already happened for him. Yes, we're sir. Just, we're just in the process. Yes, yeah. sir. That's, and this is what I'm saying. We go through life, mankind goes through life with no expected end. 
Except when we start reading the expected end. <laughs> I've read to the back of the book. I get to see how it turns out, right? So now as I'm coming to this knowledge, I'm coming out of my ignorance and into this knowledge, I'm understanding that the world has a purpose. It has a meaning. It's been established in the heavens from before the foundation of the world. Are you with me? And God, by his providence, is bringing it, like Bill says, to an absolute end. Okay? Which hasn't quite happened yet. The end hasn't happened. That's why it's expected. So, if you will, that's what I'm saying. In time, it has yet to happen. So, we expect it. Are you with me? Uh, so, uh, but yes, absolutely. But, but so everybody agrees though that this is motivated, this atonement, this Jesus on the cross dying is motivated by God's love, right? And that furthermore, he did, he, he wasn't obligated to do it. He did it out of his freedom. He was free to love. He was free to come and to die. He, Jesus went willingly to that cross of his own free choice. Amen. Yes, sir. Um, an example might be the prophets in the Old Testament. They prophesied that Jesus would come and you would die. Mm-hmm. So there was an expectation there. And as we went through a period of time, we came to that point when Jesus did come, Jesus did die. Amen. And therefore, it went from expectation to now we see it. Mm-hmm. And now we are beyond that point. Now we look back. Mm-hmm. And we can say, yeah, this happened absolutely. Mm-hmm. Amen. And, and even though God was above it, right. he, he sees it all like um, the saints in heaven now. Right, right. We're there now. Right, and, but, but we also have this intermediate state right. where yet all of the fulfillment of the purposes that God had in Christ have not yet in time and space come to pass. Right. But they are for us our good hope. And our trust and our faith is stayed on that cross and what he accomplished that ultimately for us it's going to bring about our glorification. Amen? That we are, you know what the picture is going to be like at the other end? It's not going to be God pointing a finger and Adam and Eve walking out of the garden with their heads hung in shame and a flaming sword and an angel banning them from God's presence. It will no longer look like that. Here's what the scripture says. I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any mourning or dying or crying or pain. For the old order of things shall pass away. Behold, I'm making all things new, says the Lord. I will be their God and they will be my people. Amen? Are you with me? And if you will, that's that end we are expecting. And as our brother said, it's absolute. Right now, we're just eagerly awaiting those things to come to pass. Amen? And so we say with the rest of the church at the end of the book, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you. Oh, Lord, as we consider your nature, it is too wonderful for us, God. It is, it is beyond us. And, and so we look at you and we, we glory in your power. God, your knowledge is amazing to us. I pray that you would explain it to us. Give us understanding, God. Help us to be hungry, to search in our relationship with you, to find those treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and to strengthen our faith accordingly. And God, I pray that all these things would lend themselves to our hope 
and our faith, God. And may we look eagerly to that expected day when you will come and rescue us from this perverse generation, God. And Lord, that we will be again in your presence, restored fully and completely to intimate fellowship with you and with our blessed Lord Jesus. God, bring the day quickly, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.